Good morning, everyone. I hope uh, you recovered. Those of you who got uh, broasted in the sun last week, <laughs> uh, we suffered for Christ just a little bit. But it was, wasn't it fun being outdoors and just being together and, and seeing what a sanctuary that you could uh, have a little elbow room would feel like? All we need is walls now, so um, that'll be simple. Well, uh, today we're going to be in the, the slides will be up here in just a minute. We're going to be in module two, session two, um, looking at first and second Kings. Well, let's pray for a moment and then we'll uh, dive into this. There's a lot to do this morning. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Old Testament. We thank you for your written, revealed word by which we can know the story of all things, by which we know you, by which we know your plan of redemptive history, and by which we know how to come to faith in you. And Lord, now as we look uh, into uh, the books of First and Second Kings, I pray that you would remind us that there is truly only one king of all the kings and one lord of all the lords. There is only one perfect king, the one yet to come, our king, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that our time today would whet our appetites for the Word of God for the rest of the Lord's day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, First uh, and Second Kings. And just, just to let you know, if, um, if you're just doing this uh, BTI to uh, audit and you're just kind of being here, it, it is so much more valuable to you if you'll read ahead. And if you will uh, scan, because all of my lectures, if you figure it out, are based on the assumption that you've read this already. Um, so I'm not telling you the story of First and Second Kings uh, as much as talking about um, some of the issues associated with it. So um, as we saw in First and Second Samuel, uh, a better title for kings in the Hebrew Bible is just Kings, not First and Second Kings. In the Hebrew Bible, it's one book. In the Septuagint. Um, it's called the third and fourth book of kingdoms in the Latin Vulgate, uh, third and fourth kings. So lots of different titles. We'll go with first and second kings. We're not changing that anytime, probably before Christ returns. But in the Hebrew Bible, which is really our standard, um, it is just simply called kings. We don't know who the author is. And some people get um, nervous when we don't know a biblical author. There is a really, really good reason for not knowing the biblical author for certain books. It's because God didn't think it was important for us to know the biblical author. Um, we know who the spiritual author is, and that is the Holy Spirit. But the best candidate is Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah would be the best candidate for uh, writing the book of Kings, First and Second Kings. Uh, two reasons for this. First of all, the timing is right for being... Uh, uh, written during his lifetime, during his ministry. And secondly, Jeremiah um, was known to all as a very modest prophet. And he was ministering during the time, some of the times of First and Second Kings. And he is uh, barely mentioned. So um, two good reasons to think it's Jeremiah. However, and unless it simply says it's written by Jeremiah, we don't really know. The date of the events, this covers uh, close to um, a little over 400 years of history. You have uh, from the death of David in 970 B.C. to the release of Jehoiakim in 561 B.C. And so it deals with about 409 years of Jewish history. Um, in this particular book in Kings, character development is not the 
the main emphasis. In other words, you don't dive really deeply into any single character, maybe with the exception of Elijah and Elisha, um, but what you're getting is a broad overview. You get little tiny statements about various kings. This king was faithful. This one was unfaithful. Imagine your life being synthesized down to one final statement. I guess a great question would be is what would that statement be? Um, But in Kings, they have small little snippets of many, many people's lives. But there are some highlights, and I'll give you just kind of three of them here. You have the reign of Solomon. That is a major highlight. He is uh, still, even to this day, Solomon is considered by Jews as as one of their great heroes, um, a a great king, uh, one of the few kings in all of Israel's history that didn't deal with war. That he was a king of peace. In fact, his his name, Solomon, Shalomo, uh, in Hebrew means what? Peace, like shalom. So uh, the reign of Solomon is a, is a highlight of the story. The miracles of Elijah and Elisha are a highlight of the story. Uh, they do some spectacular stuff. Uh, you wanna, somebody says, well, the Bible is old and dusty. Really? Read Elijah and Elisha. Those guys were doing things that, that are unheard of. Uh, how, how many people would love to be able to say when an ungodly commander with 50 soldiers comes and says, you need to come see this ungodly king. Uh, may fire come down from heaven. Boy, that's like, just once, Lord, just want to see that happen. And then you have the fall and the repopulation of Samaria, the northern kingdom. This is huge because this now sets up in the New Testament who are the people that the Jews don't like. It is the Samaritans because they're partly Jewish, partly Assyrian, partly anything else. And so they are seen as half-breeds, so to speak. So those are important highlights of the story. And we'll spend um, a good chunk of our time here, a little bit of time on the historical and theological themes. I I want to get through these at a reasonable pace because we have some um, important interpretive issues to go through here too and and this may be the only time in your life you ever hear these so uh, obviously uh, if you were guessing what the top theme in kings might be you would say how about the kings so we'll go with that Um, why is the the topic of the kings important well as you read through first and second kings what you realize is that god continues to put up with israel despite failure of king after king after king why is this? Well, it's very simply because of his promise to David, because of the Davidic covenant. There were 39 separate kings of Judah and Israel. I'm going to focus just on a few that the authors really emphasized a little bit more. I, I told you a minute ago that there isn't a lot of character development. There is some. So we'll focus on just those that are developed a little bit more. Uh, the first one is Solomon. Solomon had a requirement of obedience. 1 Kings 2, 2 through 4, I am about to go to the way of all the earth. This is David speaking to Solomon. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So he was required to be obedient. He was to be a man of the word. He was to be a man of Torah, of the law. 
We also see that Solomon claimed to be the seed of David that was promised to David. 1 Kings 5, verse 5, 1 Kings 8, 1 Kings 5, verse 5. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. 1 Kings eight twenty. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But there was a condition for him to be the singular seed of David. The condition was perfect obedience. How many of you believe Solomon was perfectly obedient? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. So Solomon was not the seed of We'll talk about him again in a moment. He is helpful in understanding the seed, and we'll see that shortly. But Solomon was not the seed. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. 1 Kings eleven four. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, Solomon is very much a riddle for us. He had so much, literally, more money, more wisdom, and more power than any man on earth at the time. More wisdom than any man that's ever lived, the Bible says. Um, he had more of everything, and yet he failed significantly. And then, on the other hand, he writes... Wisdom within the scriptures at the highest level possible. And yet God took the kingdom away from him. Chapter 11 of 1 Kings said that. He was the wisest and he was the most foolish. He single-handedly reintroduced idolatry into the life of Israel. I mean, that, that's horrible. That, imagine this. Imagine me showing up to Grace Bible Church on a Sunday morning and preaching to you the virtues of Buddhism or Catholicism, and half of you going, you know, I think that sounds like a good idea. The other half are going to vacate the premises, but the other half, all of a sudden, who is God going to point at? He's going to point at me. And Solomon single-handedly told Israel by his actions, idolatry is okay. It was a spiritual disaster. So Solomon is a riddle. We'll come back to him in a bit. Then you have the kings of, of Israel. Now, this is an important uh, <clears throat> little distinction for you to get. Once in a while, there are some things that are just helpful to memorize. The northern kingdom became called Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah, after the tribe of Judah. That's an important distinction to make because so much of biblical history is built on that after uh, Solomon. So when we say after Solomon, Israel, we're, we're really talking about is the northern kingdom, which was comprised of all 12 tribes except two, uh, Judah and Benjamin. So when we say Israel, northern kingdom, if you've read Isaiah, you also see just a little side note. Often God calls Israel slash the northern kingdom Ephraim. Ephraim is a nickname for Israel because Ephraim was the largest land area in the northern kingdom of Israel. So uh, it would be sort of like um, calling the United States of America Texas. It's huge and it kind of represents what America is about minus California and Connecticut apparently. So just understand that uh, the kings of the northern kingdom slash Israel, 
northern kingdom. Generally speaking, here's one thing to, to just stick in your memory. Generally speaking, kings of the northern kingdom, all failures, up and down. They are the worst. Let's do a couple of them here. Jeroboam, 1 Kings 11 and 12. He introduced alternate worship of Yahweh in the north. In other words, he said, hey, Jerusalem is so far away. Why would you go all that way when you can just stay here? Why was he doing this? At this point in Jeroboam's reign, now there's a competition between the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's trying to get people to stop going down south, to stop going to, um, back to the house of David. He uses the exact words of Aaron, the, the brother of Moses. He qu- says, quote, your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Because what does he set up? Golden calves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You have a false, priest, a false priesthood. You have false festivals that are very, very close approximations of the original. And so it's sort of like, hey, we're, we're, uh, we're just like them. It's like um, if you ever talk to a Mormon and you ask a Mormon, are you a Christian? They'll always say, yes, of course. We're just like you. And, and I talked to a Mormon once on the street and um, he said, you know, we have a lot more in common than we, than we differ on. And yeah, we do, except for one thing, faith in the true living God, the one thing that matters. So in the north, Jeroboam brought a really close approximation. False priesthood, false festivals. They were close, but they were not real. They were not God's ordained system of worship. Then you have Ahab. How do we evaluate Ahab? 1 Kings 16.30, here's his, uh, here's his one-liner. Here's his epitaph. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's his epitaph. He established not just false worship of Yahweh like had happened under Jeroboam, but he established state-sanctioned worship of Baal. And he did this, of course, uh, through his wife, uh, Jezebel. State-sanctioned worship of Baal. He set up uh, theological battles now between Yahweh and Baal. So the centerpiece of kings is on the ministry of whom? Elijah and Elisha. These battles between Yahweh and Baal. The confrontation of 1 Kings 18 is one of, the, I think, the greatest chapters in the Old Testament where uh, Elijah, of course, brings on this confrontation with all the prophets of Baal and, and then kills hundreds of them when God shows himself to be the true and only living God. You recall Ahab's wife, Jezebel? Nobody's ever named their daughter Jezebel in like 3,000 years. She was the Canaanite daughter of the king of Sidon who was also a Baalite priest. And she was eaten by dogs as was prophesied. And then you have King Jehu. 1 Kings 9 and 10. He was raised up to exercise God's judgment on the house of Omri. That's Ahab's father. Jehu eradicated state-sponsored Baal worship in the north, but he didn't completely get rid of it. Out of all the northern kings, Jehu is one of the best. He doesn't completely get rid of it. Um, People could go back to the old way. And Jehu didn't depart from the golden calves. So let me put it this way. Steve Swartz shows up and starts preaching Buddhism. And 
one of you rises up and and rightly kicks me out and you get up here and you say, oh, I'm the pastor now. Um, We're getting rid of Buddhism except for room 160. We'll leave that as the Buddhist shrine just to not hurt anybody's feelings. Oh, you were so close. Jehu was close, but he didn't do all that he could have. Then you get to the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, and you kind of take a breath. You go, okay, there's a couple of great guys here that we enjoy and that we're thankful for. Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18 through 20. He is the most trusting of Yahweh. Hezekiah makes it into the book of Isaiah as well. Uh, He and Isaiah lived uh, at the same time. He's the most trusting of Yahweh. Then you have Josiah, the young king, and he is said to be the most obedient to the law, most obedient to the Torah. But even with Hezekiah and Josiah, at that point, the dam was going to break. Even their influence wasn't enough to overcome the moral and the religious decay of Judah. Um, You read many of the minor prophets which speak to the nation of Judah. You see that they were too far gone. And uh, the comparisons between the nation of Judah and the United States of America are a little bit scary to me in the sense, not, not scary like we're afraid, but in the sense that it is possible for there to be many faithful in a nation and yet as a nation to be too far gone to be redeemable. And of course, the Lord can do anything and we're not God's chosen nation. He's not particularly interested in disciplining America to bring us into conformity with his will. We're not his chosen nation. But if you have a man like Hezekiah who had enough faith to have his life extended by 15 years, who had enough faith to ask God to help him defeat 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, you have a man like Josiah who got rid of the high places, who got rid of, of, of uh, altars to Baal all over Israel, all over Judah, and yet they weren't enough, then you know that Judah was in bad shape, bad shape. So that's the theme of the kings. We'll, we'll go faster on the other themes. You have the theme of the prophets also. We've mentioned them already. There's some individual prophets that are mentioned. Nathan, Ahijah, Jehu, Elijah, Micaiah, Elisha, Jonah, Isaiah, and Huldah. You have these individual prophets. Um, what does kings show about the prophets? What kings shows is that when the prophets speak, God has spoken and what they speak comes to pass. Those who are entrenched in the, in the false prophecies of the charismatic movement today, I always want them to read the books of First and Second Kings and find out what a real prophet does. A real prophet makes spectacular uh, predictions that always come true 100% of the time. And what does the law of Moses say should be done with a prophet who misses it once? He should be stoned to death as a false prophet. If, the, if those in the charismatic movement would simply read First and Second Kings, they would get a different standard for what real prophecy actually is and see that we don't need it today because we have the word of God. Then you have the theme of the temple. The temple is, is very much the centerpiece of the book. It is what uh, the, the fight is about. Will there be real worship in the temple? So you see the temple highlighted, but the temple is polluted what happens to the temple at the end of the book? It is destroyed. The temple of God is taken out and it is uh, torn apart um, for the first of two times in history. And so uh, ultimately the temple becomes useless when the people worshiping there are false. 
So put it this way, uh, the presence of God on earth in the temple is only as effective as the people who will go and worship there. God doesn't lay hold of a particular place and say, I'm going to stay here forever and ever and ever, um, no matter what kind of worship is happening there. No, at some point, he destroyed his own temple because it didn't mean anything anymore. Now, we do know from Ezekiel 40 through 48, the temple will be rebuilt again. And this time there will be a slight difference. It will be occupied by the Lord Jesus Christ. No more destruction of temple because the worship there will be true. But that's a story that uh, we'll look at tonight, by the way. Then you have the theme of the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Yahweh. He fulfilled the word of the prophets. And I don't know if I have a chart on this. I thought I did. Yep, there it is. So you can get this online. I'm not, you won't have time to write all this down. Um, this is merely for uh, illustration purposes only, if you can even see that. Um, let, me, let me do it this way. So up here you can see you have the prophet listed, you have the prophecies, and you have the fulfillment All this is to say that if you grab this chart online, you can trace uh, all of the fulfilled prophecies that, uh, wow, what's happening up there? Oh, (laughs) thank you, James. You can trace all the fulfilled prophecies. Uh, This isn't just a bunch of guys saying, thus saith the Lord with no accountability. They're able to uh, actually, um, you can track, here's what he said here, and here's the fulfillment in these other chapters. That is pretty spectacular and it gives you a lot of faith that when uh, other prophets in the Bible speak things that haven't yet come to pass, it means the track record is 100% perfect. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ says that he is coming soon, when he says that he goes away to his father's house to prepare a place for us and he will come and take us to be where he is so that we can always be with the Lord that those things are true as well. So I I love that little chart because it just illustrates to me God always keeps his word. One more theme. That is the theme of the united and divided kingdoms. We talked about this a little bit already. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he can't keep keep the kingdom together for 24 months. That's all it took to break up a a kingdom that had had a king now uh, for well over a century, uh, particularly under David and Solomon, each of them reigning about 40 years each. But Rehoboam can't keep the kingdom together. And you begin to see uh, the splintering of the nation. And this is, first it gets basically cut in half, and then after that it's going to be splintered. Then you have um, God continuing to raise up prophets in both kingdoms, warning them, urging them, obey the Lord, turn back to the Lord, repent, repent, repent. That is the theme of many of the minor prophets. Then you have the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 BC to Assyria. And the fall of the southern kingdom in 586, 587 BC to Babylon. And we've talked more about Babylon at Grace Bible Church. So let me talk about Assyria for just a moment. Um, Assyria had a slightly different strategy than than Babylon. Assyria's strategy was to uh, conquer a nation, take away all of its inhabitants for a time, then send back some of them with some of their own people as well to re-inhabit it. And that's what happened. That's why you have the the Samaritans, the the mixed Jews, part Jewish, part not. And so the Assyrians had a slightly different strategy. 
The fall of the southern kingdom in 586, um, you recall that that is really the final blow. Nebuchadnezzar first uh, came and attacked uh, the kingdom of Judah in 605, right after his victory at the Battle of Carchemish, where he destroyed Egypt uh, in one blow and uh, destroyed the Assyrian Empire in one blow. So you have Assyria and Egypt who have gone down, and now Babylon is is everywhere. And so in 605, he comes and he uh, attacks Judah and decimates them, takes only a few people. He takes some of the best to take him back to Babylon. Who does he take? Well, there's four guys we know, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in 605. Um, Judah wasn't paying their tribute. They weren't being good little, uh, a good little vassal nation. So in 597, Nebuchadnezzar came back and spanked them again and, and battled against them and conquered them again. And then it happened over again in 586. This time, Nebuchadnezzar said enough and he destroyed the entire area. Um, the, book of, uh, the book of Habakkuk explains also that not only did he destroy Jerusalem, but he burned the orchards, he burned the stalls. Uh, they, uh, according to extra biblical tradition, introduced salt into the uh, farmland, basically to make this land just uninhabitable. And so that was God's judgment. He warned, he warned, he warned. little trivia note, when was the first time that God warned Israel that other nations would conquer them and they would be scattered if they didn't obey. All the way back in Deuteronomy, Moses warned them before they even lived in the land for the first time. So these warnings now, if you take it, for example, all the way to um, 722 for Assyria, these warnings are 700 years old. So nobody could say, well, God is so cruel. Uh, we don't warn our kids for like seven seconds. You know, uh, in our house, some of you, I won't ask for a, ra- a, hand, a show of hands. Did some of you use the horrible technique of counting? One, two, three. Meaning the kid is saying, oh, I've got five more seconds to disobey. Right? In our house, one, two, three was how many spankings you were getting. And we used to count as we did them. God was gracious, more gracious than we are. He did count. One, two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred years of disobedience. And finally, he breaks his kingdom up. Not permanently, of course. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away. From the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show, show mercy to the young. So the united and divided kingdoms and things have never really been the same since. Yes, after the exile, they came back um, as one nation, by the way, and they weren't idolaters anymore for a while. But the Israel of today is not the Israel of the Bible Certainly, and we'll get more into that as we get into uh, other areas of theology. All right, those are the, those are the major themes. Let's uh, look at the purpose, and you probably have gathered this by now. Here's the purpose of the book of Kings. It's to point you forward. The human monarchy, including the house of David, failed to follow Yahweh with the results that Israel and Judah were taken from the land in fulfillment of the prophetic word. The human monarchy, including the house of David, failed to follow Yahweh with the result that Israel and Judah 
were taken from the land in fulfillment of the prophetic word. This has been the human history of God's people. It is, you start really well and you just degrade over time. I've told this story before, but I got to help um, Dr. Richard Mayhew that I used to work with at the Master Seminary. I got to help him write a pretty major article on how to keep a seminary on the right track. And so we were doing some research together, and one of the things that, that we discovered is that in the United States of America, there's never been a single seminary that has stayed true to the doctrines of grace for more than three generations. Not one of them. And so we were writing about, about some of this history. In the Church of Jesus Christ, you have, you have these churches over time that started with a bang. Uh, the church at Ephesus. Can you imagine having Timothy as your pastor? There's another guy you might know who became the pastor of Ephesus down the road. A guy named Onesimus, a former slave written about in the book of Philemon. They had some, they had some monster talent there. And yet, what did Jesus say to the church of Ephesus? You have lost your first, what? Love. That has been the history of God's people. And so you start with, and we won't count Saul, but you start with David, a man after God's own heart. And after him, really, there's nobody like him. It just goes down and down. And so what King shows you is that after 39 kings, we give up on a human-only king. We give up. You know, when Kings was written, it was written during the time of the exile and it was written to those in exile. Basically, the purpose of Kings says, here's why you are here, but wait for the Lord and cling to him. There is hope. The narrative of Elijah and Elisha shows that the battle for the heart of Israel, that's really the main point of Kings. They're raised up to confront the idolatry of Israel. So, the purpose of kings is to point us forward to say, okay, we're 0 for 39. Let's look to a king who must be greater. Let's do the literary structure. Pretty simple. You have the kingdom that is united under Solomon. In 1 Kings 1 through 11, you have the kingdom that's divided under many kings. 1 Kings 12 through 22. You have the fall of Israel in the north, 2 Kings 1 through 17, and the fall of Judah in the south, 2 Kings 18 through 25. So again, you see that degradation. There are some glory years under Solomon. There are some years under Solomon where, where every nation on earth was coming to visit him. By the way, does that sound familiar to you if you know your eschatology just a little bit? Every nation coming to Jerusalem to see the king? Zechariah 14 says that will be happening when Christ is reigning on earth. Revelation 21 and 22 speaks of that happening as well. And so it's like, ooh, we got a little, a little taste of what a glorious nation ruled by a godly king visited by all the nations on earth could be like. But then Solomon blew it as well. So speaking of Solomon blowing it. Let's uh, do three interpretive issues and we'll make Solomon the last one because um, we like Solomon, don't we? I mean, he wrote three books of our Bible. Um, he is wise. You know, we, we, go back to the, we go back to the incident of the, the two women fighting over one baby and the incredible wisdom that he showed to say, cut the baby in half and give half to each woman and the true mother was revealed by that. 
And we love that. We're like, man, that's amazing. I never would have thought of that. So we'll get to him in the moment. In the moment. First interpretive issue, chronology. I know when I said that word, chronology, four of you just went to sleep right then. I understand that. But this is important. I'll tell you why it's important, because we need to trust our Bible. But there is an interpretive issue. The kingdom of Judah goes from about 931 to 722 B.C., 210 years. The kingdom of Judah, if I, did I say Judah? Anyway, kingdom of Israel first. Kingdom of Judah, 931 at the fall of the, or at the division of the kingdom to 586 B.C., 345 years. Um, the problem is, is that uh, <clears throat> kings list 394 and a half years for Judah. That's about 50 years more than we would add up. And 241 and a half years for Israel. In other words, there's not enough time for each of them. So how do we solve that? Like any biblical interpretive issue, you're not necessarily trying to solve the problem first. You're trying to see if there is a solution. I'll give you, this is a one question quiz. Of all the interpretive issues in the Bible, how many of them have solutions? All of them. Very good. So this one will be no different. There's many potential solutions. First of all, Israel and Judah began their years at different times. This is why you have the the halves in there. Uh, Judah or Israel began their year March and April and Judah began their year September and October. Then you have something called um, accession or accession, depending on how you say it, versus non-accession year dating. What does this mean? If somebody becomes a king in September... Sometimes, some people would say that was the first year of his reign. Other times, they wouldn't start the first year until the next full year began. You do that 39 times, you're going to start to get off one way or another because you don't know whether it was accession or non-accession you're dating. And then you had co-regencies. It wasn't a clean shift. It wasn't just... um, One guy saying, well, I'm done. Here's the throne, and now we begin the new countdown. Very often, a son would reign alongside his father for 5, 10, 12 years. And so they would overlap, but they counted both of them. And so you had some uh, difficulties there. So the conclusion is, is that it's a solvable problem. And it really doesn't make a big difference. And it's not like we're off by a 1,000 years. We're off by a couple of decades. And so it's not an issue at all. doesn't mean that there's a translation problem. doesn't mean there's a problem with the Bible. It just means that this happened 3,000 years ago and we're not sure how they were counting at that time. So it's a very solvable problem. How about this one? What about the high places? The high places, you read this all through Scripture and generally speaking, if you read the Old Testament, what will your conclusion be about the high places? High places, bad. Worship of God in the temple or in the tabernacle, good. That's your basic conclusion. What is a high place? Well, very simply, it's a hill. It's a, it's a mountaintop. From the beginning of time, what has mankind attempted to do to get close to God or to the gods if they are polytheists? They've attempted to get physically close. And so there's this sense where very rarely did you ever hear somebody say, I want to worship my God, and so I think I'll find the lowest place on earth. Now they say, I want to find the highest place on earth. This was the whole point of the Tower of Babel. We're going to build a tower to the stars, which was seven stories tall, by the way. 
Um, I mean, we, we run more steps than that at the gym. So it's, it, it's this attempt to get close to the gods. So the question is, were they excusable or not? This is a big deal in the Old Testament because there are some good men who worshipped at high places. The first view is that they were excusable as long as they weren't associated with Canaanite practices until the building of the temple. That's a, that's a major view, that they were excusable. And it's kind of like, you know, we would put it in very pragmatic terms. Um, if if uh, we lived in the Midwest and our church building got decimated by a tornado and we have to meet in a park for a while, I don't, we wouldn't think that the Lord's going to be mad at us for meeting in the park. There isn't a place for us to meet. And so that's a very pragmatic view. The other view, though, is that they were inexcusable both before and after the building of the temple. So let's just do some facts here. There's nothing in the law of God that says you can't go to the high places. Nothing says that. Um, but you, you can't worship pagan gods. That's what's against the law, obviously. Samuel set up a worship center in Ramah. He didn't receive any condemnation. Then you have once the temple being built, uh, once the temple was built, the besetting sin of Israel and Judah now was the use of high places because now all other worship centers are out of bounds. So those are just some facts. They, they don't contribute one to one view or the other. They're just facts. From 2 Samuel 4 to 2 Kings 9, there's no central sanctuary for the people to bring their sacrifices. 1 Kings 3, the people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. So you might say, okay, well, look, guys, they're just, they don't have a place to meet, so they're going to go wherever they can. Which view are we going to go with? It's inexcusable. Why? Because they did have a place to meet. They did have a place to meet before the temple. The tent of meeting, the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant is to be located. Solomon's worship wasn't condemned, but it should have been in Jerusalem, where the Ark was. So we'll put it this way, God was very, very patient, but it should have been where the Ark was. It should have been in the tabernacle. They had a place to meet. Why did they not meet there Nobody really knows. It may have been just the laziness that it would take. It, it took hundreds and hundreds of men to set this thing up. It was massive. So we don't know, but we do know this. The lesson that the high places teach us is that we do not get to self-style worship. We do not get to make alternative choices. We don't get to even say, well, I have a style preference in worship. It just breaks my heart when I hear about people who have um, visited Grace Bible Church and through the grapevine I hear, well, are they coming back? No, because they're not really into hymns. What does that have to do with anything? What that has to do with is I want to worship in a way that makes me feel good instead of in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Why are hymns pleasing to the Lord? Because they talk about him and not about me. That's why they're pleasing to the Lord. So the high places... Oh, they were a slippery slope and some good men worshipped at the high places. But we don't want to go down that slippery slope. We want to worship in the way God has ordained. 
Okay, I've been waiting all morning just to do this part. Solomon, what do we do with this guy? There's basically three views. It's uh, basically for, against, and I don't know. But I'll explain a little bit more. View number one. He was a flawed follower of Yahweh. 1 Kings 3, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. That just like us, he was a follower of the Lord, but he was flawed. He worshipped things he should not have. Just out of curiosity, anybody here, since you have come to faith in Christ, never once worshipped at the idol of your own heart? How many of us can say, since we've come to Christ, we have never been guilty of the sin of idolatry. Nobody can say that. View number two, Solomon was an apostate who turned completely away from following the Lord. Where would we get this view? 1 Kings eleven nine, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. In fact, we mentioned this earlier, Solomon set the example for Israel as an idolater and eventually the entire nation followed. So that text says that his heart turned away from the Lord. Now, we think in terms of New Testament. We think in terms of uh, Hebrews 6, that once you have uh, named the name of Christ and then turned away from him, it is impossible to be renewed again to repentance. We can't think in those terms exactly. Um, There's a little bit more fuzziness in the Old Testament. We still do believe in the doctrine of regeneration, but it's not the same. It's not on the same level. It's not the same exact um, par with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which we know is permanent. So which one is it? The third view is that the record is inconclusive, but Solomon is an imperfect type of Christ. And on the slide, I don't have the word imperfect He is an imperfect type of Christ. Let me stop right there for a moment. What is a type of Christ? A type of Christ, two things that are important to know. First one is that a type of Christ is someone or something in the Old Testament that represents in shadowed form the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a type. The second thing to understand is that uh, we take the view that the type of Christ is only a type if the New Testament says so. For example, Joseph, is he a type of Christ? Nope, because the New Testament doesn't say he is. Is he an incredible illustration of Christ? Absolutely. But we wouldn't say he is a type. We want to keep a tight definition. According to uh, Roy B. Zuck, uh, his, in his book, uh, Basic Bible Interpretation, there are 17 types, in, and that's a narrow view. So is Solomon a type of Christ? Well, two things to think about here. First of all, the writer of Chronicles puts Solomon in a very positive light. The book of Chronicles says, here are all the great things about Solomon with very little emphasis on his sin. But here's kind of the kicker. Jesus, in Luke eleven thirty one, said he is like Solomon. What does that mean? Solomon is a type of Christ. Would Jesus ever say, I am like an unbeliever? Would he ever say, I am like someone who is ultimately unfaithful and that I will judge in hell? We wouldn't say that. Let me give you some facts. Deuteronomy 17, 17. About a king 
Moses says, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. What did Solomon have? Hundreds of wives and excessive silver and gold, yet so much he didn't know what to do with. And on top of that, he was taxing his people. About the first thing Solomon does is marry a foreign wife from Egypt. This wasn't Solomon's first wife. Um, Rehoboam was already born when Solomon became king. Solomon is the writer of Song of Songs, ironically, the greatest love poem about God's view of marriage ever written, written by a man with 700 wives. I'm, Lord willing, going to preach through Song of Solomon either later this year or early next year. I'll explain how that can be, but I don't have time for that right now. He wrote Song of Solomon. He wrote Proverbs, at least most of Proverbs. By the way, the last chapter of Proverbs was written by his mother, Bathsheba. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes. If you have studied it all, the kind of the, the makeup of the Bible, five books in the Old Testament are called wisdom books, the wisdom literature. I've already named three of them, Song of Songs, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There's two others. Can you name them? Come on, guys. One starts with ps- <laughs> Psalms. <laughs> Very good. And the other one starts with J and ends with Ob. <laughs> so you got five of them. Out of all the wisdom books in the Old Testament, five of them, 60%, three out of five, are written by Solomon. So the question is, would God inspire a canonical book through an unbeliever? And we know he spoke through Balaam in the book of Numbers. Didn't inspire a whole book, though. Solomon was the premier man of wisdom in the Old Testament. He is said to have written over a thousand poems. The Song of Songs, as it's often called, is said to be his best. And it's a, it's a work of art. Solomon's most glorious poem is about monogamy. It is about one man married to one woman. I'll give you one little hint. Who's the woman in Song of Solomon? It's his one true love. Then he got caught up in what it means to be a king and I need to start marrying all these foreign women to create treaties and it just got completely out of hand. And I always wonder what happened to that, that little farm girl that he originally married when he was very, very young. Now, how do we understand this? If you've read the book of Ecclesiastes from Solomon Ecclesiastes is the story of a man who has tried every bit of worldly happiness that the world has to offer. He's tried all of it. And what is his conclusion? The conclusion of 1 Kings 11, this is the official conclusion. This is God's official word. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away. But Solomon, writing at the end of Ecclesiastes, as an old, old man, His conclusion is, the end of all things is this, worship God and Him only and serve Him all your days. So the book of Ecclesiastes is very much the story of the regret of a king who tried everything. And so can we say with with fair confidence that at the end of his life, in in the private moments of his own heart between him and God, that he repented? I would say that's a fair bet. So will you see Solomon in question? In heaven, rather. Will you see Solomon in in heaven? 
He's not the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He failed publicly. But we don't have a single instance of a book of the Bible written by an unbeliever. And we have a book of the Bible written by Solomon telling us what a man who has repented of all of his regrets looks like. And so I'm going to say that we will see Solomon in heaven. I have trouble swallowing that three-fifths of the wisdom literature written in the Old Testament is given by a man who ultimately rejected God fully. I don't think we can, we can believe that. So will you see Solomon in heaven? Absolutely. What does that tell us? That tells us that if God can save a man who married 700 wives and had 300 concubines and who collected more gold and silver and who tried literally, quite literally, to purposefully feed every one of his lusts on this earth and God can save that man, then we're in pretty good company. God can save us as well. And I'm thankful for that. So there we go. We have one minute for questions on First and Second Kings, even though I've told you everything I know. What have you got? All right. Um, we try to make every Lord's Day at Grace Bible Church as much as we can. We want this to be a mini Bible conference for you every single week. Um, we've got a lot of good stuff this morning uh, in, the early, uh, in, the, in the first worship service this morning. And tonight, um, I'm going to do a little ad right now. We're going to finish... Um, backstage before Bethlehem, the last message on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. This will be my 18th message, and I gotta tell you, this is my favorite one. There isn't even a close second. Um, So I am eager for tonight, and I hope you'll be here as well um, to hear this, because we will have gone from Genesis all the way to Malachi uh, to see the angel of the Lord. So I hope you'll be here tonight as well. There is my advertisement. Let me pray for us real quick. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've had in First and Second Kings. I know I've done all the talking, but I pray, Lord, that the... um, the word of God would just be so living and active and sharp in our hearts and in our minds to make us more and more like Christ. I pray that we would be in awe of your glorious redemptive plan that the Bible is not just a series of stories glued together. It is one story. It is your story. And we look forward, Lord, to the consummation of your story We look forward to the church of Jesus Christ being taken up into heaven. We look forward to the return of Christ to this earth to set up his kingdom. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to proclaim Christ in every corner that we possibly can so that as many as you would ordain would come into the kingdom. Thank you for those who are here this morning. We pray for your blessing on our formal time of worship where we present our hearts and our minds humbly before you here in just a few minutes. We pray in Christ's name, amen. See you in just a short bit.